As you uh, likely know, uh, last Wednesday afternoon, Nicholas Cruz, an expelled student in Florida, marched into his former high school with, with an AR-15 and killed um, 17 people. And while our world would, would like to, and our nation especially, would like to politicize that event, can we please lament the fact that 17 people, mostly teenagers, were needlessly gunned down? Can, I mean, can we, as followers of Jesus, mourn the grievous loss of life without, without getting into that ever-present gun control debate? It's, it seems to me that often uh, conservative evangelical Christians are associated with the Second Amendment as if it is a spiritual issue. It is not. I, I, again, I don't want to politicize this today, so can we stay away from that discussion and grieve the meaningless, horrible loss of life that ultimately is the result of living in a sin cursed, sin-broken world. Can we lament that today and in the next few days families will bury their children? So I'd, I'd just like to pray for them. Would you join me? Father, as followers of Jesus... Such senseless, murderous, sinful, rebellious action against people grieves us deeply. We we don't know the families, likely don't even know the community that was affected, but our hearts are heavy as we think about death. And so we want to stop right now what we're doing in the midst of great worship and time that we're going to spend in the Word and we want to remember and and mourn appropriately. And we want to pray for families who today or in the next few days will bury children. And we are asking that the church will be the church and stay out of the political fray and offer the hope of the gospel to people who desperately need to hear it. And so we pray for that community. We pray for those families. Care for them in ways that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, families and students, a community and a nation will grieve and, and in a sense face their own Mortality. Funerals, you see, provide, even force, that kind of reflection and introspection. As a consequence, many will have seen or will see counselors trying to reconcile the irreconcilable. The unexpected tragic loss of life gives an opportunity to reflect and ask the inevitable why questions, questions which often do not have immediate answers. Other than the ultimate answer, people who do not know Jesus are lost, broken, sinful, and in need of rescue. 
It is why Jesus, the very Son of God, came to earth, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died so that he could rescue us from the pits of our own making and walk with us through the inevitable pains and sorrows of life. And and so maybe the event this week hits you hard like it has hit me. I just want to offer hope today, the hope of the gospel. You see, as people talk to parents and friends and colleagues and counselors, there really is only one explanation. The devil holds this world and death in his clutches, but Jesus came and took the keys of sin and death to destroy the works of the devil so that we no longer need fear death. We understand as people face death, they do so generally with great fear. Why? One pastor author suggested the following five reasons. First, he said the fear of pain. I mean, no one looks forward to the process of dying. The, the fear of separation from what we know and from ones we love. The fear of the unknown. The fear of non-being. In the words of famous atheist Bertrand Russell, brief and powerless is man's life. On his and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. That's encouraging. And fifth, the fear of everlasting punishment. Would you take a moment and look at that list in the bold on the screen? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to at least four of those fears. We no longer fear separation, the the unknown, non-being, or everlasting punishment. Jesus has taken care of all of that. Maybe the fear of pain still exists, but even that is temporary. In the midst of a culture of death and destruction, darkness, brokenness, I have some very good news for us today. Jesus came to strike a death blow to the devil to rescue us and to walk with us in the uncertainties, challenges, and miseries of life, even this week. Here's the outline of the text. We haven't even read it yet. I know that. Here's the outline of the text we're getting ready to read. We're going to see the death of death. Isn't that glorious news this morning? The death of death through our high priest, the propitiation of our high priest, and then the help And maybe you need to hear that today, the help of our high priest. Let's read the text, Hebrews 2, and our continuing study of the book, starting in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death, because of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. There's the angels again. But but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful. You need to hear that today? A merciful and faithful high priest 
in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able, listen right now, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is incredibly, incredibly good news today in the midst of a broken, sinful, lost, reeling nation and world. Told you a couple of weeks ago that no book in the New Testament more clearly displays the full deity and full full humanity of Jesus Christ than does the book of Hebrews. Now, trace church history and almost every heresy has at, at its roots some false teaching regarding Jesus either denying his deity, like the Arians of the 4th and 5th centuries, which are nothing le- were nothing less than, than, than present-day Jehovah's Witnesses, or, or they denied his humanity like the Gnostics of the 2nd uh, and 3rd centuries. Today, many deny his deity outright. We hear it in, you hear it at the university. They suggest he was a good man. He was a good teacher. A moral man, maybe someone whose teaching changed the world, but a man nonetheless. That There are even those in the so-called church today who want to deny his deity, at least they say when he walked on the earth, suggesting that when Jesus became a man, he emptied himself of his deity. And I have suggested that that is unorthodox heresy. You see, Orthodox Christianity has always maintained the full deity and full humanity of Jesus. Now, we as evangelicals, probably in response to the denial of his deity, sometimes err on the side of his deity, uh, forgetting his humanity, the fact that Jesus was fully human. And by the way, still is. That is one of the amazing things. When Jesus took on human flesh, it was an eternal decision to identify with us. Well, so as we saw, Hebrews 1 clearly declared the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Remember, and I'm going to put it on the screen and you won't be able to read it, so I'll read it to you. He was the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the radiance of God's glory, uh, the the exact representation of his nature. He's seated at, at the Father's right hand, the place of highest honor and power. He's better than the angels. He's inherited a name better than the angels. What is that? Well, he's called the Son, such that All God's angels are called to to worship him. And we know that only God receives worship. More than that, he is called God by God himself. His throne endures forever. All uh, creation will eventually perish, but Jesus will remain because he is eternally the same. I mean, clearly, the the author declares the full deity of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. That is an incredible list, but, but we must not miss his humanity. Chapter 2. Thus far in chapter 2, we see Jesus was made for a a little while lower than the angels and and thereby tasted death. God tasted death for everyone. Further, it was was fitting for um, God to perfect, it's an interesting word, to perfect Jesus through his suffering. We saw that didn't mean that he was imperfect, but in his humanity... he, to, to make him perfectly and entirely the great high priest of his people, God perfected him through his sufferings. But now we arrive at an important question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to become human? 
Have you ever wondered that? I mean, could God not have saved his people apart from the incarnation? Couldn't he have done that? Couldn't he just snapped his fingers? There's a threefold answer in our text today. And again, I cannot think of a, a better timing for this text than in the midst of deep human suffering. First, in verses 14 to 16, he became human so that he might destroy death. Again, is that not incredibly good news? Look at the verses. Therefore, since the children, that goes back to verse 13 we looked at last week, the children that God has given to the Son, since the children share in flesh and blood, that is, since the children of God are made of flesh and blood, since they are physically human, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. That is, in His incarnation, Jesus became flesh. Yeah, we remember John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Drop down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh, lived for a little while among us, at which time He was made for a little while lower than the angels. Absolutely incredible that Jesus, the Creator, would be made lower than His own servants. Philippians 2, He emptied Himself, not of His deity. Erase that from your vocabulary. He emptied himself, perhaps of the glorious display of that deity, fine, taking on the form uh, of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Why, though? Why? That's the question. Hebrews 2 goes on, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You see, since deity does not die, in fact, let me give you just a little hint here, a little if you're writing the word deity and trying to remember, is it D-I-E or D-E-I? Deity does not die, so it's not D-I-E. It's D-E-I. Since deity does not die, Jesus took on flesh so that in that flesh he might die. Think of it. He was born human to die human. Now, how did the devil have the power of death? Takes us back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the Garden of Eden. We remember that God created people to live forever. Death was not intended to be part of the human condition. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and he'd given them complete freedom. Tend the garden, keep it, do whatever you want, eat whatever you want, except, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right there in the middle of the garden. The day that you eat that fruit is the very day that you die. And we know that Satan, in the form of a serpent, serpent tempted the woman who disobeyed God, um, ate the fruit, gave it to her husband who also ate, and on that day, mark it down, they died spiritually and were assured of future physical death. And as a result, all their descendants, everybody in this room, are born sinners, spiritually dead and assured of future physical death. The truth is we too were born to die. Now, 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 now the difference between our deaths and the death of Jesus is, frankly, we deserve it because the wages of sin is death. We die because we are, we are sinners. So in that sense, Satan controlled us by the certainty of death. 
One author suggested that the happiness of every, the happiness of every joy-filled occasion is tempered by that niggling reminder of pending death. Satan had the keys of death, if you will, because he had the power of death. But we read in 1 John chapter 3, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. That is, those works that he introduced in the garden uh, when he, as the father of, of lies, successfully tempted humanity and plunged the rest of us into sin and ruin and death and the fear of death all of our lives. Right? People fear death. It's one of people's greatest fears. But Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Do not miss that Jesus said, we don't have, as followers of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid, we don't have to be fearful, because Jesus is the living one. He was dead, but now, through his resurrection, is alive forevermore, and he has the keys of death. I do not want to go further than the scripture says. The scripture never says that Satan had the keys of death like that Jesus went and wrestled them from him. It does, however, say that he had the power of death. John, in both his epistle and his gospel, uh, says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and that he is the ruler of this age. Paul calls him the God of this age and the prince of the power of the air. But mark it down, Jesus came to render the devil powerless to those who believe to render powerless the one who had the power of death. Notice the past tense, because he does no longer. He is a defeated foe, so we need not fear. We can face death with calm, the calm assurance of the gospel. Second uh, Timothy says that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is glorious news. That brings us to verse 15. In his death and resurrection, he rendered the devil powerless and freed those who through fear of death were subject, because of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. I love the way the ESV has it, you ESV people. Jesus came to destroy the devil and deliver. He came to destroy and deliver. Destroy the devil and deliver his children who had been, in, uh, had been held captive by the devil. Notice the author says, we were in slavery all of our lives because of fear. Fear of death. But no longer. We have been freed. As I said earlier, the fear of death has been obliterated by the death of Jesus. He put death to death by his death. This is incredible. So, so we no longer need fear. Have you ever... Have you ever seen that? Been at the bedside of a believer facing death without fear? I have many times. It's quite special. Some of you, very few of you will remember Laverne Cox who passed away just uh, within the last year, I think that it is. But, but m most of you do, did not know her husband, George. 
and, and George died many, many years ago. And when he was on his deathbed in the hospital, I would go and visit him to encourage him. And he would talk to me and he would encourage me. And after about 15 minutes, he'd look at me and say, okay, it's time to go. I say, well, I, don't I? Did, nope, you got work to do. You don't, need, you don't need to be here. Go on, you can go now. <laughs> he had no fear of death. He was unbelievable to be in his presence the moment he took his last breath. We need not fear the unknown because we know him whom we have believed and, I, and are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed to him against that day. We need not fear everlasting punishment because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We need not fear non-being, whatever that is, because, there is no, uh, uh, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord right now. The moment George took his last breath, he took his next one in the presence of his Savior. No non-being. We need not fear separation because nothing will separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death, <laughs> nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, that's probably demons, nor things present, nor things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from his love. Hallelujah. So why do we fear death? We don't have to. We don't have to fear that which is listed as one of humanity's greatest fears. Because it has no hold on us. We, we can join Paul in saying, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Now that's talking about our physical bodies, but, but remember, the, the moment you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't do soul sleep, no such thing. But we do await future bodily, physical resurrection at the last trump. And then those who are still alive will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, this mortal put on immortality. Then when this perishable shall I put on imperishable, this mortal will put on immortality. Then will come about the saying, which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. <laughs> Do you look at death that way? It's been swallowed up. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. That's why we die. And the law... Uh, the power of, of sin is the law. It holds us and reminds us of what sin is, and it tells us what sin is. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have to be subject to slavery, the slavery of fear any longer. We don't have to. Look at verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. So, there again, we kind of tying us back to angels again. And we are reminded once again that the gospel is not for angels. It helps people. Someone sent me a verse to an old song that I frankly had forgotten, but it is a glorious verse. Look at it. Holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings for angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. <laughs> Great. Someone came out at the first service. Here it is. We sing this one. Crowned with many crowns. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. They don't get it because it's not for them. It's for you. It's a glorious truth. 
So what does the author mean when he says he doesn't give help to angels, but only the descendant of Abraham? Is it only the Jewish people whom Jesus helps? You bunch of Gentiles. Not exactly. Romans chapter 2 says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. Inward Jew, circumcision of the heart. Further, chapter 4 says, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are under the law, that is Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Still not convinced, let me give you another one. Galatians chapter 3, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles, there you are, (laughs) there's your name, Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of the faith, are of faith, are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The point is, as believers in Jesus, we are indeed descendants of Abraham and the one whom Jesus helps, which brings us to our second point. Calm down. I just preached most of my message. How did Jesus help the descendants of Abraham? Verse 17, through making propitiation for our sins. Look at it. Therefore, he had to be made, that's interesting wording, like his brothers and sisters in all things. Again, interesting way to say it. He had to, meaning the only way that propitiation could be made for people was for Jesus, that is God, to become a man like his brother in all things. Why? Because in order to be the perfect high priest, in order to represent man to God, He had to become a man. And in order to represent God to man, he had to be God. He had to be the God-man. You see, a mediator stands between two people. He stands between us and God. He had to be made like us. Anselm of Canterbury, who lived in the 11th century, if you were interested, addressed this idea in his supreme work, Why God Became Man, in in speaking of the payment that must be made for our sins, Anselm wrote. It could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. The only way for sin to be forgiven is for man to pay the price. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both God and man. Thus, it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person, in other words, the incarnation, so that he who in his nature ought to pay and could not, that's man, should be in the person who could, that's God. Get it? He's the perfect God-man. He paid the debt we could not pay because he was God in the flesh. So that he might become a merciful You'll miss that word mercy. Merciful and faithful high priest in all things. This is the first of 17 times that the author uses the term high priest in this book. He's going to make a big deal about it um, through the rest of the book, so I'll save it till then. Suffice it to say that in order to make propitiation, he had to be made a high, he had to be the high priest because you see the former high priests, well, they too had to make atonement, if you will, for themselves, their, their work 
was, however, was just rolled forward until the, uh, uh, until the sins of the people were eventually rolled onto Christ. The perfect high priest who did not need to make atonement for his own sins, so his sacrifice, frankly, of himself was perfect and complete. But notice, as a man, he became a merciful, he became merciful and faithful high priest. How so? Because the next point, which we'll see in just a moment, since he was human, he knows what it's like and is therefore the perfect one as human to show you mercy. We'll come back to that in a second. But he's also faithful. He's a faithful, faithful to whom? Faithful to us, faithful to God. Lots of discussion about that. But in the end, most agree, probably faithful to both. You see, again, a priest acts as mediator between two parties. And Jesus did so faithfully to both God by fulfilling his eternal plan and man by dying in our place. He was most faithful to God and man. So in what way did he serve as a merciful and faithful high priest? By making propitiation for the sins of the people. Your translation may have an atonement. That's it's fine, but I don't think it captures it fully. It certainly includes that idea. He died in the place of his people to both, here's a couple of theological terms for you, to both expiate and propitiate their sins. To expiate means to remove their sins. To propitiate means to remove God's wrath from his people because of their sins. In other words, God was rightly angry because of humanity's rebellion. But Jesus did both. Expiate and propitiate. By becoming sin for us, taking our sin away, carrying them in his body to the cross, and thereby, as theologians say, absorbing or averting the wrath of God that was rightly poised against us. That's propitiation. He turned God's wrath from you that you rightly deserved. Jesus became a man, sharing in flesh and blood, that through his own death he would render powerless the one who held us in the clutches of death to free us from the fear of death. And as our perfect, merciful, and faithful high priest, his dying provided expiation, propitiation for us, which leads to our last point. Having be, and our conclusion, having become a man, he himself was tempted in that which he suffered so that he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, I know we know this verse, but I want you to notice it within its context. I want to remind you to whom Hebrews was written. It was written to a group of people who were being opposed, persecuted for their faith. Martyrdom was right around the corner. They were questioning if this Christian faith was really worth it. They were considering quitting. And so the author writes to remind them that they have a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to help us because he suffered through his temptations. He can help you in the midst of yours. The same temptations. Writing to people who were tempted to quit. That's interesting. This verse teaches a couple of very important things about temptation. First, we will learn later that this high priest who was tempted in every way as we are, he was without sin. 
That tells me that temptation itself is not sin. It is not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was. This world is filled with temptations. It is a sin to give into the temptation. Jesus was tempted in what he suffered the same way that these people were being tempted so that he is able to come to their aid. He was tempted in every way that you are right now so that he can come to your aid. So again, in what way were they being tempted? These people. To quit. To bag it. To to walk away from Christianity. Did, did, Did Jesus face that same temptation? You bet he did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried out to the Father, listen, if there is any other way, let's do it that way. Father, let this cup pass from me. You ever feel that way? This is too much. I cannot endure this oppression, this opposition, this persecution. The trials and challenges of the Christian life are just too great. I'm about done. I don't think I can take another step. Jesus felt that. But he persevered. And the encouragement is to remain faithful, to not quit, to stay with it. Because Jesus is there, the one who did endure. He is there to give help in the midst of all of your challenges. Let me close with an important second thought about Jesus' temptation. It's a doctrine that is called the impeccability of Christ. Stay with me. This doctrine means that while Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, he was not only without sin, it was impossible for him to sin. Well, he was, after all, God in the flesh, and God cannot sin. Now, some people, lots of people actually, are bothered by that. They say something like, well, if Jesus could not sin when tempted, then he was not tempted like I was. There is no way that he can fully understand my position. And they actually use that, their feelings about this uh, doctrine, to deny the doctrine. But I want to suggest to you that the opposite is actually true. Yes, it is true that he was tempted. Yes, it is true that he never sinned. And yes, it is true that as God, he could not have sinned. But consider this. When you are tempted and give in to the temptation, that is, you sin, you do not face the temptation to the degree that Jesus did. How, how can you say that? Because eventually you gave in. You didn't face the trial to the degree that Jesus did because he never gave in. He faced the temptation to its fullest degree. When you give in to temptation and sin, you do not face it to its fullest degree, to the degree that he did. Why? Because you quit. So, truly, he is able to understand your temptation to a greater degree than you ever have. And I would suggest further, it does not require that you give in to temptation and sin in order to understand it. It only requires that you are tempted. He was more fully, and so he is able to fully understand. So, I close. What are you facing right now? What do you feel is too much for you to handle right now? Maybe the events of this week have been a bit overwhelming to you right now. God, why don't you do something about this problem? He did. 
He sent his son. You ever doubted? You ever felt like quitting? Can't do this anymore? Talk to Jesus. He understands. He has been there. And he will come to your aid. He will help you through it. That's not Scott. That's the Bible. By the authority of the word of God, I say to you, he will help you in the midst of your struggle, no matter how great it is. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is a great passage in the midst of a sin-filled, broken world and nation. Things are falling apart. Things are a disaster. Precisely why Jesus took on flesh to come and make all things right. We as followers of Jesus can trust him as our faithful, merciful high priest to intercede for us, to pray for us, to care for us, indeed to walk with us because he fully understands. So Father, wherever we are right now and whatever situation we are facing, I pray that by the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, that we will be comforted today and we would be encouraged to persevere in Jesus' name. Amen.